0: Hello 2 2 Hello chat 2 chat 2 2 industry 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 tag The saddest sleigh bells you'll ever hear in your life, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Industry Tactics and this our two-part extra special festive Christmas special brought to you by Swiss Chalet, who I'm honored have agreed to sponsor the podcast, which is very, very cool with a side order of extra guck sauce and cool. This means that our podcast will now have to talk about their product, which shouldn't be too difficult. Here's a jingle that I wrote for them around this time last year and recorded it with my good friend Nicholas Robertson on the banjo. by the way Merry Christmas if you celebrate on December 20th 2004 I took a drive to Peterborough Ontario to interview two unique and influential artists the Canadian composer R. Murray Schaefer and John Boyle a Canadian painter and founding member of the Nihilist Spasm Band. Look back on your life to date and ask yourself, who are the great teachers that have helped you define your outlook? Who taught you how to dream big and make the world a platform for those dreams? Finally, who are the great teachers that have made you feel special and that you are not alone? For me, that big influence has been the Canadian composer R. Murray Schaefer. I first came across Schaefer's work while finishing my undergraduate degree in the late 90s, and finally had the chance to meet and work with him at a teacher's practicum in Kingston, Ontario, through Queen's University. I was able to audit that practicum and absorb some of Schaefer's ideas firsthand. You could tell that he had been refining these ideas for decades, but his skill in teaching us was in how he made you feel like you were getting to the point he wanted to make relatively on your own, ...and that his role was more of a tour guide rather than a lecturer. I formed a bond with Schaefer that I maintain and cherish to this day. Soon after, I would launch these absurd parades in my hometown of Brampton, Ontario. Schaefer became an advisor of sorts for who else had such a unique experience base... He would come to Brampton and help me formulate my ideas, getting me closer to the finished event with over 700 kids marching down Main Street in downtown Brampton, making noise and performing compositions with homemade musical instruments. This was around, I'd say, 2002-2003, and while Schaefer was advising me about this, he himself was working on a similar project called Quimbra Vibra, where he had been hired to help the town of Quimbra, Portugal, ironically, I oddly... Celebrate an anniversary by vibrating or playing the entire city as a musical instrument. Uh, For those of you planning Canada 150, you chumps, this is how you should do it. Vibrate the entire country, of course. Think of how cool a concept that is. You know, playing the city as a musical instrument. How would you go about playing, say, your hometown as a musical instrument? keeping the people in your town or city in the foreground, as remember, they are what makes that city great. My work in Brampton was weird, but Schaefer and his guidance made me feel like the weird was normal. We've stayed in touch over the years, and Murray has always made time to have me over to his place for a salmon sandwich or meet me for dinner to catch up on our respective work in Toronto. I've read mostly everything he's written and drawn inspiration from some of the commonalities in our lives. I visited Murray at his farmhouse recently, just outside of Peterborough. Rolling Hills, quite picturesque. He told me, periodically deer and other wildlife come by to say hello and check up on me. Schaefer's tie to Canadian nature is well-knit throughout his work. Whether it's his 10th string quartet, largely inspired by bird songs or Snow Forms, a voice piece inspired by Canadian snowdrifts. On the wall of Schaefer's studio was a t shirt with a Schaefer quotation that read, Art should be dangerous. I really like that. For me, a lot of what Schaefer has represented over the years is a sense of rebellion, a sense that you can do music your own way, whether it be Leading a group of people blindfolded through un- Union Station at after midnight, or considering the art of lining up various scents into what Schaefer calls a smelody, or throwing a concert by a, a lake that requires three hours to drive through and begins at four forty-five a.m., he pushes the envelope of what we call music. Murray Schaefer has always made me feel like I'm not alone as a quirky Canadian musician. He's validated a lot of my work in the classroom and also academically by being supportive and thoughtful as a mentor. Murray has taught me that it's okay to think big. In a recent visit, though, as I see him age and the projects taper, it did remind me that many big thoughts rely on some of the core energy that cares for and owns them. When that energy is gone, it's hard to keep some of the concepts and work alive. Luckily, there are friends, such as Doug Friesen and others, making noble efforts to keep these things and the ideas in the foreground. Music education relies quite heavily on the individual, and I hope that Murray's work will continue to thrive and that musicians and thinkers across the globe will embrace his work for years to come. In Schaeffer, we see a side to Canadian ingenuity that is truly one of a kind. Whether it be his long-term project, The Patria Cycle, which strings together a narrative over the course of 10 large-scale works, ranging from operas to outdoor labyrinths, to writing several books on music education, to coining the term soundscape and backing it with rigorous research. Armory Schaefer celebrates what Canadian music and culture can evolve to. Here it comes now. This is part one of the Industry Tactics Extra Special Festive Christmas Special. My chat before this podcast existed But nonetheless, an important conversation that I hope you'll find interesting. From 2004, with one of Canada's greatest composers, R. Murray Schaefer. You seem to me like a composer who has successfully existed by doing it your own way. Have you ever felt that your music or artistic vision uh, was ever compromised along the way of doing what you do?
1: I think we all make compromises in various ways in order to survive. Um, I tried to always write the kind of music that I wanted to, but at the same time, occasionally, um, one gets invitations to write something that you perhaps didn't um, in, want to write or intend to write and, um, but there happens to be a commission associated with it or you're doing it for a good cause or something so you you do those things but <clears throat> I um, you know I'm a freelance composer and a freelance composer has to uh, uh, make his way or her way is, is, uh, in this country which is not particularly generous to freelance composers um, so, to some extent, you try and maintain your independence, but um, to a certain extent, you're required to make certain kinds of compromises in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not making the the, the bad um, compromises like writing film music or doing some kind of hack work or something of that sort, mm-hmm. or I might say teaching at a university. Mm. Nice.
0: Um... That, that's one thing uh, I was going to ask you about is our own country. I mean, uh, Canada, what what do you, have you ever felt that, um, <clears throat> I mean, I've read obviously what you think about some things about getting along. Um, as an original, as a truly innovative composer, do you, do you find it difficult um, getting your ideas across in this country?
1: Um, I think... I think it's always been difficult for the kind of contemporary music that um, that we write to find an audience, a willing audience in Canada. Uh, you, it's much easier to find that audience in Europe. I mean, that's not an original statement. It just happens to be a fact that new music concerts in Europe are packed and sold out whereas uh, new music concerts here are struggling for survival. When I say new music, I'm talking about the kind of uh, contemporary music that we're writing. I'm not talking about new music in other areas, um, popular music and so forth, which uh, certainly um, has an entirely different kind of clientele, but our, our music is um, uh, is attached, unfortunately, I think, to a tradition Mm -hmm. And that tradition is a tradition of European composers, uh, classical European composers, uh, for which there isn't uh, very much uh, interest in Canada either. So um, it's perhaps mistaken really to see our our music as an extension of that tradition. I think that a lot of the things that we're doing go in a totally different direction. For instance, um, you know, many of my pieces which are performed outdoors and uh, which involve the audience uh, as participants and so forth, are far away from the European tradition that we've inherited. Mm-hmm. So they really belong to another genre, they belong to another kind of, uh, um, what, another kind of uh, <coughs> uh, society uh, of uh, of musical activities that hasn't really yet perhaps been identified mm-hmm. and separated from its origins.
0: Well, how would you define being successful?
1: That's kind of a nice high school question. Um, well I don't know whether I am successful. Uh, it, <laughs> it's. Uh, what does success mean? Financially successful? If it means financially successful, I'm certainly not financially successful. Um, if I was, I'd probably be living uh, in a penthouse apartment in Toronto. Um, no. Um, I Successful, uh, I guess, means simply being satisfied that you've accomplished something in your life that has um, been original, different, Mm -hmm. satisfying to you, and perhaps to some other people. And to the few letters or the few communications that you get from time to time from other people, listeners and so forth, um, who tend to um, support the idea that you've done something that has moved them and Mm -hmm. given them something interesting in their lives, Um, I think that makes it... um, Successful, as far as I'm concerned, that's the most important uh, meaning of success.
0: Right. Um, would you say that you cater to the minority uh, when you're doing? I mean, you say the few letters, uh, or is that just a sad comment on the fact that? I mean, but you you're widely appreciated across our country. It's a hard thing to to get around. I mean,
1: no, I don't think I don't think I select a minority audience right. uh, in the things that I do. Uh, as you know, um, like yourself, I'm very interested in music education and um, I've done a lot of work in that field, going into schools all my life and uh, working with young children, even very young children, and uh, right up to um, older children right. and um, <laughs> well and adults. Uh, who've been participants in various productions and things of mine uh, as well. So that I'm not trying, I'm not at all exclusive uh, mm-hmm. in that sense. It, uh, I'd, I'd really, um, I'm really very satisfied with, with, uh, you know, the response that I've had, generally speaking, in terms of the activities that I've mounted and the participation Mm-hmm. Interest, the interest and participation in them, I think, has been uh, wonderfully satisfying. Um, I guess I could say that, <clears throat> unfortunately, the kinds of activities that we do and the kinds of music that uh, people like, like myself, write, it's uh, it's very difficult to to get extended publicity for it simply because it isn't a money-making venture and, you know, our culture is founded on money and uh, there are those people who want to make money from culture and they know how to promote merchandise in order to make sure that they, um, they do uh, survive that way. But, um, you know, in our, in our field we, we're not so interested in making money, therefore we're somehow left a little bit outside. Another thing that I would say <coughs> is that many of the works that I do you know, are intended for um, other kinds of uh, satisfaction than merely um, a good um, sound for the ears. You know, mm-hmm. uh, like a pop song. Um, you know, mostly about uh, adolescent love and things of that sort. But if you think of any of the other kinds of human experiences that are just as important birthing and dying and um, the summer solstice and uh, the winter solstice mm-hmm. and the rise of the sun in the morning and things like that mm-hmm. these are um, subjects that are just as worth, worthy of celebration in music and many cultures do have those uh, kinds of activities and I think a lot of the work that I've done particularly the environmental pieces moves in that direction towards the celebration of other kinds of Um, activities that are part of our human life and um, that that, those things are totally ignored in pop culture Mm -hmm. which is basically just interested in in, um, uh, well, sex and um, pubescent um, love, you know Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a real limitation in terms of the kind of um, um, opportunities that are Made available for anyone who wants to, for instance, write a piece of music that has to do with um, giving birth to a child, or um, has to do with uh, greeting the rising sun in the morning. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, you know, these these other subjects are are somehow taboo. But these are the subjects that I try to confront in pieces like the Princess of the Stars, for instance, and uh, other works. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, Do you think ugliness belongs in music? Sure, ugliness belongs in music, Um, otherwise uh, uh, beauty wouldn't have any sense at all, so you've got to have contrasts. Music is made of contrasts, it's made of sounds and silences, it's made of um, sounds that are high and sounds that are low, (laughs) and uh, if you didn't have those contrasts um, you wouldn't really have any variety in the music, it would be all gray, so ugliness um, is part of it. Now, what you might call ugliness, um, some other people, like Edmund Burke, who wrote a beautiful essay called The Sublime and the Beautiful, might have referred to as sublime. He talks about beauty being some of, uh, being the kinds of things that are intimate and close, and uh, close to the human uh, level of experience. Uh, for instance, in musical sound, uh, the sounds of the voice, a soprano, alto, tenor, and bass and the instruments that are more or less in that range. Um, So that um, those are the warm instruments, those are the human instruments. And then he talks about the sublime being instruments or sounds that are way outside of the human range, like an explosion or like uh, something uh, very, very high and piercing and shrill. And that these kinds of sounds uh, are (coughs) going to be, to some extent, frightening to us and perhaps perceived as being ugly. And uh, but you need the contrast of the sublime and the beautiful really in any kind of a dramatic uh, uh, construction or dramatic composition. So ugliness uh, definitely has a has a place in our lives. Uh, after all, there's enough ugliness in our lives anyway. <laughs> I mean, we're s- yes. we're smothered by it. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> you might have asked, is there any place for beauty in our lives? <laughs> right on. Um what do
0: you oh, do you think humor has a place in music, and is there a distinctly Canadian sense of humor?
1: Yeah, humor has a place in music uh, also i it's a very hard thing to do uh, strangely enough, you might think it's very easy to be funny in music, but it isn't and when you look at the classical tradition, there are very few funny pieces um, Haydn wrote a funny piece, you know, the symphony in which all the instrumentalists leave one after the other, um, because they weren't being paid by uh, Prince Esterhazy. And uh, so <laughs> there was a kind of a, a commentary on, on, on the poverty of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the orchestra that it ended up with only one player playing. So uh, that was a funny piece of music, it wouldn't be funny if it was performed today, but I guess I hope the prince took it <laughs> with a sense of humor. I, I don't really know how he did react to it. Um, but there are very few other funny pieces of music. Um, it Because humor is something that is much more spontaneous, perhaps, than music permits, usually. I wrote uh, a funny piece of music called uh, No Longer Than Ten Minutes for the Toronto Symphony Orchestra once, when they contracted me, um, and in the contract... Um, they had uh, specified that the piece should be no longer than ten minutes, um, written out in ca- in in, in uh, 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 as a word T E N, and then in ten the brackets. <laughs> brackets like a legal document, you know. Right. So I wrote a piece called "No Longer Than Ten Minutes," and uh, the piece actually begins, since they had told me it would be the opening piece on the program. It begins with the warm up; the strings are are you know, tuning up and so forth and uh, nothing much happens and just, the tuning up seems to continue for a while and then after a while the conductor comes in and starts to conduct and nothing really changes they're still tuning up and, and fiddling around and it goes on for about 10 minutes and gradually builds into a huge wall of sound and this huge wall of sound getting louder and louder and louder at exactly 10 minutes the conductor turns around and leaves but the orchestra continues to play <laughs> without him. <laughs> and uh, and then there is a, um, there's a <clears> there's <throat> de capo in the music, de capo meaning going back to a certain point and repeating it, so that it says if the audience starts to applaud, you go and do a de capo back and re- you repeat the big climax uh, at the end again. And you continue to do that as often as the audience applauds. Well. Um, some students uh, from York University um, in a sociology class that uh, I was teaching decided that they were going to come down and demonstrate Emil Durkheim's um, dictum that um, in order to define the law you must break the law, therefore crime is necessary. <laughs> mm-hmm. And. Um, so, in other words, to define a concert, you have to break the rule of the concert, and then you'll really see what the ritual of the concert is. So um, I was breaking the rules, you see, by um, not uh, shaping it in the way that concerts are usually shaped. And uh, these students came down with garbage pails and lids and things like that, and and uh, uh, we... Um, Kept the <laughs> kept the applause going by banging on the garbage fields, and we managed to extend the piece to 20 minutes. <laughs> and uh, so, of course, the management was—they uh, were horrified, and uh, they were really angry. I, I remember yes. one—I remember the hand of the of the of the manager of the orchestra coming out the door at the side, and, and, and making a motion to the percussion players to shut up, shut up, stop, stop playing. You know? yeah. But then we gave another round from the audience of, on our garbage pails, and then they went back to the crescendo again, up to the big wall of oh, that's sound, great. and uh, so, yeah, that was a great event. Just as a spectacle, it was mm-hmm. a wonderful event. Mm-hmm. And it turns the TSO inside out, which is always good. No, they had no sense of humor. No? Uh, no, no. the TSO um, uh, management and most of the players had no sense of humor whatsoever. They still don't have a sense of humor. That's why they're in such a predicament. If they had a sense of humor, perhaps they wouldn't be um, in, in the difficulties that they're in at the present time.
0: Um, I recently wrote a piece for students um, that I'm teaching called How to Play Your Bathroom. It's essentially just, you know... a structured series of events of you know you give it to kids as a piece of music they go home they tape it up on their mirror in their washroom and they play you know every little thing in their bathroom and a, and a teacher said to me she said richard i understand what you're going for but at the end of the day do you actually sit back and listen to your bathroom as music she understands my philosophy on where i'm coming from with music but i found it difficult to respond to her and I wonder if if you might just respond to her for
1: me. I think that um, it's a question of the interpretation of the word music. It's an unfortunate word in, in some ways because it has a very distinct meaning, particularly in Western society. Uh, it might uh, surprise most people to realize that in many, perhaps even most of the languages of the world, the, w- the word music does not exist. Mm-hmm. There is no word for music in uh, most African languages. There is no word for, for music in most Native American languages. Mm-hmm. There is a certain kind of sound making for instance, there's this one kind of sound that you would make if you want to sing a lullaby to put a baby to sleep. There's another kind of sound that you would make if you were on the warpath and you were drumming up to get going yes. um, to war. There's another kind of sound that is made when you're um, um, doing a particular activity and singing in the fields to it, you know, um, uh, hunting or gathering or whatever you're doing. Uh, but these things are don't all belong together under the sort of the generic term music and unfortunately in the western world you know there has been this word music which has been around now for a long time and has got kind of bottled up with certain kinds of sounds. A certain historical collection of sounds are considered music and other kinds of sounds outside of those are not music. So that if I make whoopee, you know, uh, in any other way, mm-hmm. it is not considered music right. because it is not part of the of the um, of the code of what music uh, is, and <clears throat> and that's that's the real problem that we we face all the time, uh, you and I, when we're trying to do things to open up people to the idea that music is sound Mm -hmm. Um, just as John Cage said music is sound whether you're inside a concert hall or outside Mm -hmm. and he refers uh, us to Thoreau and there's a chapter in Walden um, called Sounds in which Thoreau simply describes all the sounds that he heard around him living in his little um, um, dwelling there all alone um, listening to the birds and the animals and the sounds of nature and so forth um, now, whether that's called music or not, um, whether they'll permit us to refer to these kinds of experiences being musical, um, that depends on their attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, if we decide to play, you know, the bathroom, or play the kitchen, mm-hmm. or play um, a any... City. Hmm? A city. Or play a city, yeah, mm-hmm. m- and make the whole city vibrate, right. Um, as I was just doing in Portugal a few months ago. Uh, in many people's, uh, for, for many people, this would not be considered music, but for others it certainly um, can be considered music. So, mm-hmm.
0: Good. For, um, most of the kids I worked with actually recorded it and brought it in, so it, I think they defined it as music. So that was, for me, what counted. I mean, I didn't need to necessarily sell the teacher on that idea, you know.
1: Well, maybe we shouldn't call it music. Maybe we should call it noise, as I think you uh, sometimes have done. I mean, just call it a noise concert. Don't forget calling music. Don't call it
0: music. (laughs) Then, in a way, what you run into is the problem of it being taken seriously. Oh, they're just making noise. It's not structured. These bums. My tax money. Right? I mean, that's ultimately, they're just joking. They're humor. And it, it has those connotations to it. You know what I mean? It, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. I understand. Uh, you know, I understand the <laughs> problem with with uh, with that. But uh, there there must be some other way of music of the environment or something. There must be right. some other kind of term that we we <laughs> can use. You know. Oh, I'm using noises, much like I'm using uh, much
0: like I'm using weirdos to describe people like you and I. Oh, although it should be maybe originals, as we discussed yeah. over yeah. that fine salmon sandwich obviously you you know you've been an incredible inspiration on my development to date and i'm just wondering if there were any um people older than you when you were first starting out that had that kind of impact on you that helped shape your philosophies i mean don't go through every book you've read i'm just saying was there any anything similar
1: i think some of the uh, some of the big influences there were certainly some figures uh yeah. Uh, Paul clay the painter was a big influence on me because he was uh, he wrote a lot of pedagogical writings too about um, uh, drawing and uh, painting and so forth and I found those very uh, influential and I took a lot of ideas from clay and applied them to music at mm-hmm. one time and another another one was Eisenstein the, the filmmaker and I read all of Eisenstein's writings mm-hmm. um, again a great teacher and also a also an, an, an exceptional filmmaker in terms of the way he used music and the way he, um, he analyzed his films um, so that it wasn't just uh, created uh, in, a, in terms of uh, disorganized uh, you know, shooting of, of material and then editing it, um, but really ke- very carefully planning everything that he did, every scene that he shot. It was very, very carefully pre-planned. And um, he writes about it, of course, uh, thoroughly. Um, another, another influence on me and person that I actually did meet was Ezra Pound. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ezra Pound I liked because he was feisty, he was tough, he was an original. And he was also in trouble <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because of his uh, conduct during the Second World War. <coughs> um, but uh, at least uh, it was as a result of his conduct at that time that he was taken back to the United States and he was incarcerated for many years in Washington. Uh, uh, and the only way he would have saved, he could have saved, he, he managed to save himself, or others who were working for on his behalf managed to save his life uh, was um, by pleading insanity. So... Um, He was in the Insane Asylum for, I think, 14 years. Mm -hmm. I I knew him after he went back to Italy after that. Mm -hmm. Um, He certainly was not an insane man, but he was a person with very, very... um, uh, uh, He was an original, Mm -hmm. and his ideas, um, which he wasn't afraid to express, um, certainly might have um, caused a lot of puritanical people's eyes... I eyebrows to <laughs> to yeah. rise but um so pound I, I liked his i liked his toughness and uh, I think those perhaps were the three uh, figures you know in in my life that were most influential mm-hmm. uh, mcLuhan of course was another one uh, that um, influenced me quite a bit um, again again because uh he was just a, a tirade of ideas, and mm-hmm. uh, you, 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 couldn't, you couldn't really um, comprehend what he was talking about most of the time. I mean, he would say things like, electricity is, is pure information. And you, you'd be wondering about that for the rest of your life. I'm still wondering about what he meant, <laughs> you know, by statements like that, you know. But he was a wonderful sort of um, teacher in that sense, because he, he kept your imagination working all the time. And he kept you thinking all the time about what was um, what, the statements he was making, the enig- enigmatic and outlandish statements that he sometimes made. Great, thank you. Um,
0: last question. I I um stock composers that I respect, and um, when I quit U of T for the first time, I I uh, mailed Stockhausen a letter in in Germany and said I want to come study with you because there's nobody here at the U of T doing anything, and he mailed me a letter back saying, "Stay where you are. I got too much work to do here." transform Canada how do you think we should transform Canada in the future um, musically and I mean all around and not not just musically I guess
1: yeah transform Canada well of course we're we, we're all transforming Canada and tra- Canada is being transformed right. at a pretty rapid rate It seems to me compared to uh, most other countries in, in the world uh, one of the main changes in Canada is a demographic change, of course, uh, that's uh, occurred and is occurring with, the, uh, I guess, greater force uh, all the time. Um, I think that's changing our culture mm-hmm. um, entirely. I'm I'm not sure that we're aware of the extent to which it is forcing us in Canada to... Um, not only modify our culture, but to modify um, so many of our, our, our thoughts about um, history, for instance. You know, history is a, so Canada is perhaps the first country um, which is unable to really teach history, uh, because you can't teach history in Canada without insulting somebody. Um, originally we used to talk about the British history, you know, the British beat the French, and um, that's Canada. In and uh, then we talked about, you know, deux nations, there were two nations that actually founded Canada, the British and the French, but that left out the native people, you know. Mm. So then the native people had to be uh, incorporated somehow with the uh, the first nations mm-hmm. being introduced into history. And then you've got the the, the increasing volume of immigrants from all over the world you know, that have to be accommodated in some way that have no interest whatsoever in native Canadian history or British or French history. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes an increasingly difficult thing for us to, you know, to be concerned with the past. And maybe, that, maybe that's a good sign because it, um, we can lift our heels and jump into the future more quickly then other countries that are rooted in the past can do that, mm-hmm. and so the future for Canada may be um, one of uh, perhaps a certain amount of chaos, but also um, I think an enormous amount of excitement. If we can just, um, you know, forget the fact that um, we've got this, um, we've got these traditions that we got to, you know, uphold. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't really have any traditions. The traditions are are crumbling very quickly, and um, so we can leap into the future, and we can do all kinds of daring things that have probably never been done before anywhere in the world. Mm. Thanks. Okay, good, great.
0: Well, that was a true pleasure to listen back on a conversation I had with Murray over a decade ago. He's now well into his 80s, and Murray, we wish you the very best, and we're all thinking of you this Christmas. Now do yourselves a favor and enjoy the second part of this Christmas special, a chat I had on the same trip to Peterborough in 2004 with John Boyle from the Nihilist Spasm Band.